Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Chief Minister, I uh, have actually brought along uh, a copy of the Treaty of Perth from the National Archives of, uh, of Scotland. Uh, the reason actually was more self-protection than anything else. I, I heard about this story about Scots within a couple of miles of the shore being shot on sight. Uh, and I felt if I brought along a copy of the Treaty of Perth from 1266, where it says the Treaty of Perth was agreed between Alexander III, King of Scots, Magnus, King of Norway, 2nd of July 1266, arranged for the Isle of Man and the Western Isles to be ceded to the Scottish Crown and set out the details of how that was to be implemented. I and mean, if people are going to shoot you on sight, as some rather mistaken Manx legislation in the 18th century, trying to stop smuggling, I mean, what? I mean, harmless smuggling. <laughs> Uh, I felt a prior claim from 12, uh, 1266 might well be in order, so I, I've given the Chief Minister his own personal copy, which he can glance at from time to time in his office, uh, so as I can forestall any uh, premature and preemptive action in reply. Ladies and gentlemen, I think we should thank Paul Davenport for that uh, splendid piping introduction as he piped us into the hall this evening. Give Paul a big round of applause. The, uh, I, I, it gives me the opportunity to say that uh, I, I, I've come rather underdressed. This is not, ladies and gentlemen, a protest. This is because I came hot foot from the Scottish Open in uh, the wonderful, beautiful Castle Stuart Links in Inverness and didn't have time. And I promise you, the next time I make a speech in the Isle of Man, I shall come equipped and dressed as Paul Davenport and many of the guests are uh, uh, th this evening. There's a commitment from the... Uh, uh, the First Minister of Scotland, but the, the tournament in Castle Stewart was hugely important to the Scottish economy. 70,000 people came. It was the first ever European Tour event on American network television. Uh, and uh, I had the enormous pleasure uh, of uh, playing with Phil Mickelson in the, in the Pro-Am on, uh, on Wednesday. Now, Mickelson is a fantastic character, and by the grace of God, he is now the Scottish Open champion. Uh, which went down extremely well in NBC, ladies and gentlemen, who extended their coverage for an extra hour uh, to join in the, uh, in the celebrations. Uh, and Phil Mickelson, apart from being a great golfer and a really first-class guy, is uh, interested in all sorts of subjects. Uh, and as we went down the seventh fairway, and I was feeling quite good about it because uh, I was playing quite well, which was a great relief. <laughs> you don't want your first minister to be duffing shots and showing himself up. But uh, Phil called, I and mean, I'm calling him Phil now, he called me over uh, and uh, I, I thought, you know, is this a tip, uh, is this an insight into my golf game? Is he going to sort my alignment? Is he going to give me a hint or two? Uh, and he said, First Minister, I I've been worrying about the future of the European monetary system. Uh, and I wonder, is the euro going to hold together? So we had this discussion as we walked, this is absolutely true, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not making this up, as we walked towards the seventh green at, at Castle Stewart, and I'm thinking to myself, with thousands of people watching, I'm actually walking up the seventh fairway at Castle Stewart talking to Phil Mickelson about the future of the, of the European financial system and, uh, and whether the euro will stay intact. And then going up the 14th fairway, he asked me about the Jacobite rebellion because uh, he was staying at Dalcross Castle, which had been a, a bit of debatable land in 1746 between the Jacobites and the Hanoverians. And he'd been told this story as he was staying. Uh, and so he said, First Minister, I've been hearing about the Jacobite Rebellion. Can you tell me a bit about it? 
And I said, yeah, Phil, it happened last week. It was a close-run thing. It was going to and fro, uh, but the Jacobites lost. <laughs> but it was uh, an illustration, ladies and gentlemen, uh, that we should remember that people who we see and uh, respect for their art and craft in the world of golf and their personality are actually interested in a range of things. Uh, Mr. Mickelson is a first-class guy, uh, a real uh, gentleman, and a very interesting character in his own right. So anyway, I came hot foot from uh, Castle Stewart, but I wanted to, to come, Alan, even though I'm not bedecked in uh, national dress, because it is a fantastic pleasure for me to pay my first visit to the Isle of Man, and let me say that Alan and his colleagues have made us extremely welcome uh, over the last few hours, and I look forward tomorrow, indeed, to, to seeing some of the the industries of the island aerospace industry and some of the cultural developments in education in the Manx language, because I'm anxious and I want to see if uh, we can further build the relationships that have been taking place, not just in terms of the long-standing relationships of family and tourism of people, but relationships of business and activity, which are of fundamental importance. And therefore, ladies and gentlemen, I've decided to, that one of the Early decisions that Alan and I made, your Chief Minister and our, your Infrastructure Minister, uh, today in our discussions, was that it's going to be absolutely necessary uh, to restore the direct air link between the Isle of Man and Scotland. Uh, and we're giving a political promise, and remember, you can trust this because we're all politicians and you can <laughs> trust us. But our aim and intention, as far as it's humanly possible, is to restore that link before the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow next year. Uh, and I want to do this because I keep meeting people here. Who are from the apes and peeps of Scotland. And I want to make absolutely sure, although I did speak to one lady about 10 minutes ago, and I, I mentioned this in conversation, and she didn't seem too delighted. And I said, why are you looking so disappointed? She said, I'll have to visit my in-laws again. <laughs> but nonetheless, for those who are not terrified of the in-laws visiting or being visited, uh, and I can see she has recognized herself and pointing us. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it's the lady in the red dress. <laughs> she was joking, in-laws, she was joking, it was a joke. Uh, but uh, but I, I think it's hugely important, uh, given the connections, interconnectivity, the family connections, the business connections between Scotland and Isle of Man, that whatever the difficulties have been in terms of air passenger duty imposed by an administration in London who are extremely unenlightened about the difficulties that gives the connectivity between outlying parts of these islands, we shall restore that air link and we'll do it in time for the Commonwealth Games and we'll as determined as two governments to make sure that important connectivity keeps the Isle of Man and Scotland in business and family connection. Now, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I was reminded as I was flying in from Manchester today, I was reminded of the old saying that from the, the summit of Snaefell, you can see six kingdoms, the Isle of Man itself, Ireland, Wales, England, Scotland, the nearest one, uh, and of course the, the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and as uh, I was thinking about that, I was thinking of the, the late and great Alan Wicker, who passed away sadly in the last few days. Uh, and I remember seeing a, an interview that Alan Wicker gave uh, with a, a, the leader of an emergent uh, country uh, some 30 years ago, and he was chatting to this leader about uh, the, the achievement of independence of his nation. Uh, and the leader said to Alan Wicker, he said, two things my 
political opponents say I would never see. One was independence, and the other is God's face. Uh, and the leader said to Mr. Wicker, I've seen independence, and I'm hoping to see God's face. So, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to see Scottish independence, and if I ever want to see God's face, and I'll come to the Isle of Man, uh, and I'll look from the summit of Snaefell uh, and see the kingdom of heaven. Now, that tells us how closely linked the people of these islands are. The Manx language shares similarities. In fact, as I'm going to find out tomorrow with Scots Gaelic and Irish Gaelic, the old kingdom of the Isles, or the kingdom of man in the Isles, included, as the Chief Minister reminded us, many of the islands of Scotland's west coast, as well as the Isle of Man. And uh, the kingdom had overlords from England, Scotland, Ireland, and Norway in the last thousand or so years. In the 13th and 14th centuries, uh, Scotland and England disputed the control of the Isle of Man. Indeed, 700 years ago this summer, in 1313, you received a visit from Robert the Bruce, Scotland's hero king. Uh, according to the chronicles of the kingdoms of Man and the Isles, after arriving, Bruce went to the monastery at Douglas, where he stayed the night. On the Monday following, he laid siege to Castle Russian. Uh, Bruce finally took the castle and the Isle of Man uh, in December. Uh, I want to tell you, Chief Minister, I have no intention of staying until December uh, unless I, I, I'm invited, and this visit is entirely friendly in its intent. Uh, and Alan's uh, invitation to me to deliver this lecture reflects, of course, the close working relationship that we've developed in the, in the uh, British-Irish Council, sometimes called, of course, the Council of the Isles. And you'll see further relationship and further evidence of that in four days, in a year and four days' time, just next year, almost at this time, when Scotland will welcome more than 70 countries and territories from around the world uh, to the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow. In our Christmas address that followed the, the Delhi Games, Her Majesty the Queen observed as she was recounting her experiences at the Commonwealth Games in Delhi that the smallest nations always seem to get the largest cheers from the crowd. So on that basis, the Isle of Man can look forward to a tumultuous welcome in Glasgow next July. Of course, Mark Cavendish has already won once in Glasgow this year in front of 30,000 people at the National Road Race Championships, and I'm sure that he and the other Manx athletes will do you proud next year in 2014. As I said, the Chief Minister and I work closely together on the British Irish Council. And the British Irish Council was an interesting and becoming a profoundly important organization. It includes the Crown Dependencies of Jersey, Guernsey, and the Isle of Man, the devolved governments of Wales, Northern Ireland, and Scotland, and the sovereign governments of the Irish Republic and of the United Kingdom. And at the recent meeting in Belfast, in Londonderry, actually, in Londonderry, we discussed the economy, youth employment, the effects of high energy costs all the areas where all governments benefit from learning from each other and working together. Now, the British Irish Council was established in 1998, but it didn't really hit its stride as an organization until 2007, when Northern Ireland were able to uh, embrace the, the partnership in a very productive way. But it does provide an excellent example of how we can involve new ways of cooperating with each other in changing political and economic times. And that ties in with the, the theme of my speech this evening. It's about independence, 
and interdependence, the links we seek to preserve and strengthen, and those which we need to change. Ladies and gentlemen, my contention is that Scotland currently is part of six unions. We only want and need to be independent from one. That is the political and economic union which ties us to the Westminster government. We intend to remain members of a social union between the people of these islands, a European union, a defence union through NATO, the Union of the Crowns, and a currency union. These five unions, in my submission, will all in their own separate ways be improved by independence for Scotland. Firstly, the social union between people of these islands. The social union is not determined by governments and administrations. It will flourish because of the, the ties of family and friendship that we all share. It is ridiculous to argue that the social union between the peoples of these islands it depends on government from London. There's four other unions, the European Union, the Defence Union, the Currency Union, the Union of the Crowns, are ones which the Scottish National Party proposed to maintain. Of course, it will be open in an independent Scotland for all and each party to put forward different choices to the people. That's as it should be. But the real point for us, of course, is that the people of Scotland will be able to make these choices. However, the SNP's view is that retaining these unions makes sense, especially since we can use the, the powers of independence to make them work better. Better for Scotland, better for our friends, better for our neighbours and allies. So our belief is that we should remain in the European Union and have our own representatives in the Council of Ministers. And we want to do that without the obsession and negativity of the UK's relationship with the rest of Europe. Our belief is that we should continue to be members of NATO. We will work with our allies to maintain the security of the North Atlantic, but we will no longer keep nuclear weapons within 30 miles of our largest city. It's ridiculous to argue that a country of five and a quarter million people should possess nuclear weapons. In the United Kingdom, in politics, the Liberal Democrats today published its review of uh, alternatives to Trident. But a choice between the number of weapons of mass destruction doesn't, to my estimation, provide a real alternative. I think it's astonishing, totally astonishing, that at a time of huge economic austerity and pressure on public spending, that parties could be committed, hell-bent, on committing multi-billion pounds of expenditure in a nuclear weapons system. Now, independence is the only constitutional position which will remove these uh, weapons from our shores and allow Scotland to have a defence policy that meets our needs. That's the real alternative, and it's an alternative supported by a majority in Scotland. Like 25 out of 28 current members of the North Atlantic Treaty Organisation, we don't wish to have a nuclear weapons deterrent. And like 16 other independent nations throughout the Commonwealth, 14 overseas territories, three crown dependencies, we intend to retain the monarchy. But in retaining the monarchy, the people of Scotland will still draft a new constitution, making it clear that sovereignty lies with the people, enunciating positive rights, as well as protecting essential freedoms. But ladies and gentlemen, it is the final union that I want to turn to in this speech this evening. That's the currency union, which is the one I want to speak about in some detail. Now, that's partly because I'm in the Isle of Man. 
There's a fantastic story, ladies and gentlemen, about Harold Wilson, the Labour Prime Minister in the, the 1960s. Uh, and Harold Wilson, it said, was, uh, was campaigning in Devonport, the great naval base in the south of England. And Harold Wilson, in making this speech and addressing a, an election audience, said to that audience, he said, the Royal Navy is the premier service. Why do I say the Royal Navy is the premier service? And somebody shouted out, because you're in Devonport. Well, by the same logic and by the same estimation, I want to talk about the currency union because the Isle of Man provides an interesting example. Local banks have issued Manx banknotes for 150 years. The Manx pound is equal in value to the pound sterling. Your government has held the right to issue notes since 1961, accruing income to your treasury. Now, your experience tells us two important truths. It shows that self-governing territories can have credit ratings within a sterling zone which compare, how shall I put it gently, to our colleagues in London, which compare favorably with the United Kingdoms. Your smaller population is not a disadvantage, and the UK's size is no guarantee against downgrades. As many countries demonstrate on in international stage, credit worthiness is based on economic prospects, your underlying strength as an economy, not overwhelming size. So when Moody's downgraded the United Kingdom's status earlier in the year, but kept the Isle of Man's AAA status intact, just as it kept the AAA status of Austria, Denmark, Finland, Luxembourg, New Zealand, Norway, Sweden, and Switzerland, it indicated an important truth and made something of a mockery of one of the UK government's previous main arguments against Scottish independence. The No campaign, which actually self-styles itself just now, their description of themselves and their campaign is Project Fear. They argued earlier this year that the UK's AAA status was crucial to Scotland's economic prospects and was the main economic reason for rejecting Scottish independence. Now that AAA has been junked, they haven't even withdrawn the leaflets which pervade such nonsense. So if I could say to this AAA audience in the Isle of Man this evening, this is the leaflet in, uh, in contention. Reason why we're better together. Scots save billions to go to the UK's AAA credit rating. That, of course, was issued about a week before the Moody's downgrade of the UK's AAA credit rating. Now, we're getting a, a pattern from Project Fear. Uh, almost Two weeks ago, the United Kingdom government claimed that mobile phone charges would go up in an independent Scotland. On the actual very day that the European Commission set about abolishing these charges across the European Union. They said that United Kingdom embassies would no longer promote whisky. Uh, oblivious to the fact that somehow I doubt if the international whisky industry, the most lucrative and profitable drink in the world, is actually dependent on embassy receptions. But more importantly, they didn't realize that they charge for these embassy receptions <laughs> at the present moment. Now, last week, the Ministry of Defense was musing they would annex the nuclear base at Faz Lane as a crown territory if these pesky Scots were to vote for independence. Uh, that uh, policy from the United Kingdom government lasted two hours, incidentally, before Downing Street rushed out a denial of the story. As I said, ladies and gentlemen, the No Campaign in Scotland calls itself Project Fear. Perhaps it should rename itself Project Dracula. 
because the scare stories start to fall apart as soon as they see the light of day. The No Campaign in Scotland actually reminds me, because I know the Isle of Man has a fantastic input into the film industry, but these wonderful Hammer horror films where Dracula was dragged out at the end into the sunlight and disintegrated like dust. That's what's going to happen to Project Fear over the next year. Now, the second point I wanted to make about the Isle of Man's currency powers is that you've used them to meet specific needs. You don't have, of course, a formal sterling union. Instead, notes issued in Isle of Man are backed by your own currency fund. This arrangement has brought about exchange rate stability and the facilitated trade, of course, with the UK, your major trading partner. Now, that approach is ideal for the Isle of Man. It's your choice. For Scotland, a larger economy, we want to retain the pound, but also use our sovereignty to negotiate a formal currency union with the rest of the United Kingdom. Notes used in Scotland would and could be the same notes as issued in the rest of the UK. Scottish banknotes, which are sterling notes, would be issued in the same way as they are now. The Monetary Policy Committee of the Bank of England would consider economic conditions in Scotland when setting interest rates for the common currency area and would operate as the lender of the last resort. And that would be the first time since the Bank of England was founded by a Scot, William Patterson, that Scotland as a country would have a formal stake in the governance of the Bank of England, protecting its independence, but taking our share of responsibility with our partners in the UK. It's what uh, Adam Smith would have termed enlightened self-interest. Scotland would gain the, the freedom to play to our economic strengths. The rest of the UK, would still have Scotland's oil, gas, whisky exports contributing towards the sterling balance of payments. It would keep a currency union with its second largest trading partner, which facilitates exports from the rest of the UK to Scotland, which were worth almost £50,000 million last year. Incidentally, £50,000 million, ladies and gentlemen, is more than the UK exported to South Africa, Russia, Brazil, India, China and Japan put together. Can we actually seriously imagine any Chancellor telling businesses in England, Wales or Northern Ireland they plan to put up a ridiculous barrier by changing currencies with Scotland? Now, the fundamental problem in terms of this argument is people say, ah, yes, but currency unions, do currency unions work? They point to the euro, like Phil Mickelson did going up the seventh fairway at Castle Stewart. But the fundamental problem of the euro is managing a common currency for divergent economies. Productivity in Scotland, in contrast with the UK, is marginally higher than the rest of the UK. In the Eurozone, productivity in the Ruhr Valley is about 70% higher than it is in southern Greece. Now, the UK government have sounded, how shall I put it mildly, skeptical about a currency union thus far. But that contrived skepticism ignores a fundamental point. As I mentioned, the Bank of England is a shared asset founded by a Scot. Its assets and liabilities belong as much to Scottish taxpayers as people in the rest of the United Kingdom. It's as much our bank and our currency as it is anyone else's. Now, of course, it would be possible for the UK government to make the argument that Scotland has no title to these assets. But if it were to do so, it comes with an important colony. 
David Sheffer, the professor at Northwestern University School of Law, the senior advisor to Madeleine Albright, has pointed out the UK government's current position, quote, offers no basis for establishing an obligation to share financial obligations and liabilities. In other words, if Scotland has no share of the assets, then it has no share of the liability of UK debts, as surely as night follows day. I met delivering a speech in the Isle of Man, where, of course, uh, this Crown dependency has no national debt whatsoever, has a statutory position uh, to run a balanced budget. Uh, then, of course, the liabilities that have been built up by successive UK chancellors approaching almost £1 trillion sterling. Maybe something which affects a, a, an economy in a country not that far away, but doesn't immediately affect Isle of Man. Uh, but the idea uh, that the UK government would talk itself into by claiming it has control over assets, would talk itself into a position that Scotland wouldn't take a share of the liability of that national debt is an incredible position. It is, incidentally, perhaps next time George Osborne puts forward or suggests or implies or hints at that position, I should just say we'll shake hands this now uh, and, uh, and proceed on the basis that Scotland will not have to pay our share of these remarkable liabilities. Of course, what's really revealing is that the United Kingdom government has repeatedly refused to rule out the prospect of a currency union. As Project Fear shows, before the referendum on independence, it will focus entirely on raising doubts and certainly more than facilitating cooperation. But after a yes vote next September, there will be a much more constructive approach from the UK government, one focused on working in the best interests of the UK as well as respecting the will of the people of Scotland. That points to a currency union. Now that view, our view, has been put forward by the Fiscal Commission Working Group, including the two Nobel laureates, Joseph Stiglitz and Jim Merlis. It's also the view of the former notable Monetary Policy Committee of the Bank of England member, Professor Danny Blanchfire. That currency union will require cooperation and agreement. But the things we need to agree on are straightforward in relation, for example, to limits and budget deficits. And the underlying financial strength, the thing that really governs not just a country's credit rating, but a country's economic prospects in Scotland are extremely sound. For the last 31 years, Scotland has contributed more per head of population in tax revenues than the rest of the United Kingdom every single year for three decades. During the last five years alone, our budget surplus relative to the rest of the UK has been more than £12,000 million. Now, that doesn't mean we're running like the Isle of Man does very regularly, an overall surplus. Very few Western economies have managed that. But we're really better off than the rest of the UK relatively by £12 billion, or £2,400 for every Scot. Now, what independence would add for us is the full range of powers, not just fiscal powers, but powers over the welfare system, economic regulation, employment legislation, key aspects of the energy markets. We could protect capital spending, which is a crucial thing to do in tough economic times. Or to give another example relevant to the announcement that the Chief Minister and I made today about direct flights, we could eliminate aviation passenger duty to encourage more direct links to Scotland. Price Waterhouse Coopers have found that 
reducing or abolishing air passenger duty could more than pay for itself, provided there is control over all tax revenues. The reason is obvious. Increased receipts from other taxes, such as VAT from tourism, and increased economic growth will more than compensate for the decline in revenue from air passenger duty. Ladies and gentlemen, it is, of course, the holy grail of economists and politicians to be able to reduce a tax and increase revenues. It doesn't happen very often to many taxes, but air passenger duty is a clear example But Scotland at present can't take the simple and hugely beneficial decision to increase our competitiveness, to increase our business connectivity by doing exactly that. Why? Because we don't control air passenger duty and we don't control the other taxes which would be necessary to get the benefits from a reduction of air passenger duty. I said in making this speech uh, in a preview of it in Scotland, I thought there were important lessons that the Isle of Man could teach Scotland at the present moment. I think, for example, the success in the space sector provides a good example of how economic growth can be fostered and encouraged. Many people don't know that the Isle of Man, you can find four of the world's largest satellite makers who've got a base in this island. Analysts at Flight Global last year suggested odds of 20 to 1 for you to be the next country to reach the moon, making you fourth favorite after the United States of America, Russia, and China. And actually, when I saw in the Chief Minister's office today press cuttings about the relationship that the Isle of Man is forging with the People's Republic of China, I wondered if that was an attempt to get up into third place equally <laughs> with the uh, 1.4 billion people in that great country. Now, Chief Minister, I am not this evening planning to launch a space race between Scotland and the Isle of Man. But I do want to tell particularly our expatriates in this audience, and particularly the Glaswegians in this audience, that Scotland now has a space sector of our own. There is, of course, a major conference taking place in Glasgow this very day. But even more pertinently, earlier this year, in my great pleasure as First Minister, I visited a company called Clyde Space, who are about to send this September the first Scottish-made satellite to Kazakhstan, where it will be launched by a Soyuz delivery vehicle by Russia. Uh, this is a, a nano-satellite. Not being able to dominate the world in big satellites, Scotland is developing an exclusive position in very, very small satellites, nanotechnology. So we might leave the moon to the Isle of Man, but we do hope to play an increasingly, increasingly important role in that technology. Incidentally, for the expats and the Glaswegians in this audience, mission control is in Mary Hill. <laughs> and I'm hoping and expecting to be able in September to boast about the successful launch of Scotland's first satellite, and furthermore, one a month if it's successful uh, thereafter. Now, the main point about this is Isle of Man's success in space is a good example of how quality jobs can be attracted to a location, in your case, by a competitive tax environment, a reputation for manufacturing excellence. <coughs> Which is based on decades of aviation expertise and the ability of a government to promote investment. Scotland <coughs> has a worldwide reputation out of all proportion to our size and 
variety of economic sectors such as life sciences and energy. Energy is a very relevant example. Scotland has almost two-thirds of European Union's oil production, 10% of its wave power potential, a quarter of its offshore wind and tidal power. Glasgow is Europe's leading centre for offshore wind research. The European Marine Energy Centre in Orkney is a leading centre for wave and tidal power research. I was able to tell <coughs> an Arcadian in this audience earlier this evening that it is a fact that Orkney, the island of Ede in Orkney, in the Orkney Islands, has more working wave and tidal devices than the rest of the planet combined. <laughs> and therefore, Orkney in Scotland is a leading centre for this exciting technology. The Isle of Man, of course, has already been involved in discussions on the Isles project between Ireland, Northern Ireland and Scotland. And that project will look at developing the grid infrastructure, which will allow the renewable electricity we generate offshore to be transmitted to the major towns and cities across these islands and eventually across this continent. It's a good example of governments cooperating on an all-island basis to maximise the benefits of renewable energy. Another example would be the British-Irish Council's Watchstream in Marine Energy, which the Isle of Man participates in and which Scotland leads. The Isle of Man, of course, is taking steps to realise its offshore energy resources by next year's offshore renewables tender, for example, and Marine Scotland has already provided advice to the Isle of Man on updating procedures for granting consents to offshore developments. I intend, Chief Minister, as I know you do, that that sort of cooperation will continue and flourish. And as you start to, to harness your renewable resources, you'll have one advantage that Scotland lacks. You have control over your own waters. Scotland currently doesn't have control of the Crown Estates Commissioners who manage Scotland's seabed out to 12 nautical miles and almost half of our foreshore. It prevents sometimes us taking an integrated approach on how to manage these marine resources. The licenses and, of course, the revenues of much of our offshore energy are therefore in the hands of unelected commissioners. Where revenues go into the UK Treasury, in the Isle of Man, they'll be under the control of your own parliaments. It's a good example of why we need the powers of independence. Transferring control of Scotland's seabed to Scotland is a key ingredient of delivering the full benefits of offshore renewable energy and ensuring the benefits are shared widely across communities. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to tell you a very interesting story, <clears throat> something that's not known to, to many people, and certainly not in Scotland, uh, and I suspect not elsewhere. But it does illustrate the negotiating power and position that the Manx government has in relationship to Scotland. As, as many of you know, particularly the expat Scots here, but I suspect everybody for a long time since uh, North Sea oil was discovered in the late 60s, there's been a matter of great contention, which is why Scotland has managed to discover oil and gas in massive quantities and not reap directly the revenue benefits of any of it. The Isle of Man successfully negotiated a different arrangement. In the years up to 1995, the Isle of Man was entitled to 0.5% of the Crown royalties on Scottish oil resources. Not on the Isle of Man's oil resources, but on Scottish oil resources. So having the influence and power of, the, of having your own government enabled Isle of Man to negotiate a better position on Scotland's oil revenues than Scotland managed to negotiate on its own oil revenues. And Northern Ireland, incidentally, had a similar arrangement. 
1995, in return for uh, more control over the territorial waters, the Isle of Man uh, changed that uh, arrangement. Now, some time ago, as a, when I was an MP at Westminster, I discovered what I thought was quite an incredible fact. Uh, and I phoned up the Treasury and asked parliamentary questions. <clears throat> and I asked the Treasury to the nearest million to tell me what that 0.5% of royalties had been in the years up to 1995. And despite persistent, and believe me, I could be quite persistent, questioning the Treasury at no stage were able to find out or to tell this backbench MP as I was then what the figure was. I phoned up the Manx Treasury <clears throat> and they phoned back 10 minutes later with the exact figure. <laughs> now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm merely saying, who would you prefer to have running your taxation? You want a treasury which can't tell you how much oil revenues they've given away? <laughs> or do you want a treasury, as the Manx Treasury was able to do, <clears throat> to tell you in 10 minutes uh, to the nearest thousand pounds uh, what money had accrued to the Isle of Man in the years up to 1995? It wasn't <clears throat> a prince's fortune, incidentally, ladies and gentlemen, but it was a matter of several million pounds and it was several million pounds more than Scotland had managed to acquire from its own oil revenues. It is a, an example, but it's an example of how control over finance and taxation and having a government with that control is able to exert leverage. And leverage is important if you're going to act in the interests of the people. Oil and gas is going to be with us in Scotland for the next 50 years and more. The new estimates on investment around the waters of Scotland for this year are not the 12 billion, which was previously estimated, but 17,000 million pounds. The production levels will be sustained for up to half a century, and the value of that resource will be greater over the next 40 years than it's been over the last 40 years because the price of oil is fundamentally higher. The question for us is can we use these revenues and these resources wisely? Can we seek to harness Scotland's second renewable energy windfall? Can we use our natural resources responsibly and sustainably to enable our human resources to flourish? Ladies and gentlemen, <clears throat> I began this talk by referring to the view as you fly into the Isle of Man, or as that you're the summit of Snaefell. It's a view that shows some of the constraints of Scotland's current constitutional position. You can see the waters of Scotland's southwest coast controlled by the Crown Estates uh, and the waters surrounding the Isle of Man controlled now by your own elected government. Also a view which makes clear the interdependence of these islands, the connections that bind us together. That interdependence means that self-determination must embrace internationalism. And so an independent Scotland will remain in my estimation, in five unions of the six we currently share. The union we wish to be independent from is a political and economic union which doesn't meet our needs, which stifles our potential, and denies many of us many of the powers that the Isle of Man has taken for granted for some generations. However, an independent Scotland can play a full part in the European Union and NATO. We can choose to share the monarchy and the currency with the rest of the United Kingdom and in the case of the currency, by extension, with the Isle of Man. And like the Isle of Man, we'll always be part of a strong social union, benefiting from the ties of family and friendship that bind people across these islands. 
in the years after 2014. We can look forward to these ties being strengthened and renewed as an independent Scotland takes its place on the international stage and uses its new powers to embrace enduring values of alliance and friendship. In that British-Irish Council, that Council of the Isles, that your Chief Minister and I operate and are strongly supportive of at the present moment, there are currently the free Crown dependencies, the free devolved authorities and the two sovereign governments. When it becomes three sovereign governments, including Scotland, two devolved authorities and three crown dependencies. I can assure you that the cooperation which has evolved through that organization, which builds on the cooperation and history we've shared for a thousand years, will be strengthened, will be actively pursued, and the links between Scotland and the Isle of Man will be encouraged and will make even further progress. Thank you very much.